We are commemorating Master Kripal's birthday, and I want to begin by remembering a very dear disciple of his, a very dear friend of mine, who just recently left the body for the final time. I'm referring to Doris Matajets, who was an initiate of Kripal and my dear sister in him, and who was Sanchi's representative uh, in Texas for many years, and the prime, I don't think anyone, including her husband Greg, would argue that she was the prime source of energy behind the prison project. I have been thinking a lot lately about the masters and their relation to the people whom other people hold in contempt. And it's a very important part of the master's teaching, and it's very important for us to be aware that the master's love for human beings, and for that matter, for all life, is boundless, and it is not limited by what other people may think of this or that person or this or that category of persons. Doris was absolutely lovely lady, and her efforts on behalf of the various satsangis and seekers who are in prison around the country were tireless, and Sanchi appreciated that very much. I wrote a thing, a, a remembrance for Dor- of Doris, which Susan Shannon read in Satsang a couple of weeks back, and some of you have probably heard that, and also the response. Her husband, Greg, responded to what I wrote with a thing of his own, and Susan read that also. And I wanted to begin today by reading the story of Sanchi's visit to Texas in 1980, which many very interesting things happened. That visit was masterminded by and made possible by Doris's efforts and included a visit to the Huntsville State Prison and Sanchi's comments on that and various other things that happened. So Doris isn't mentioned a whole lot in this, but bear in mind that she was she was the enabler, you could say, the, the person who made it possible, which Sanchi was very grateful to her for. So I begin, I'll skip the first day, but I'll starting with June twenty eighth, nineteen eighty. I made a complete log of the nineteen eighty tour in which Sanchi went around the world and I was always going to publish it as a book around the world in 1980, I was going to call it. And I still may get into the book I'm writing now, at least parts of it. Anyway, June 28th, what a day. I will try to set down as much as I can, but it has been something else. Last night at Satsang, the master spoke beautifully on a hymn of Guru Amardas. His great golden aura was clearly visible through much of the talk. These are some of the points he made. God is not the personal property of any religion or sect. He belongs to all, 
and all have the right to realize him. The jiva is blind and God has sight. He definitely knows who is yearning for him and he himself pulls that yearning soul toward the master. If we knock on a door from the outside, it is open from the inside. Our Simran and other forms of devotion is our knocking at the tenth door, and definitely Master will open it one day. Doing the devotion of the Lord is not doing a favor to anyone. It is having mercy on our own selves. This morning the Master gave Nam to two persons in the smallest but one of the sweetest initiations of the tours so far. An interesting historical note is that Master Kripal gave Nam to three persons in Houston in 1963, the smallest initiation of that tour. The Master at the same time authorized Greg Matajets to convey the initiation instructions in Texas in his physical absence, so seekers from the South will not have to travel so far. And at some point, I'm not sure exactly when, but not long after this, Master also authorized Doris to give initiation instructions. At one o'clock, the Master went to the Langar to bless the food and make it prashad. While we were there, Doris Matajets, on behalf of the Texas Sangat, presented me with a genuine Texas cowboy hat in recognition of my mastery of the Texas dialect. It was very funny. <laughs> Some of you will remember that hat, which did fall apart eventually. But anyway, I was taken completely by surprise and was somewhat embarrassed. But Sanchi, who was laughing heartily, ordered me to put it on and face the videotape camera. Later, he told me that when the Sikh people want to honor someone, they give him a turban that I had been honored, should take it seriously, and should wear the hat. And I did. I wore it more or less nonstop until it fell off my head, basically. This afternoon at 2 p.m., we left for the wind unit of the Texas State Prison. An hour and a half away by car in Huntsville, where the master has a disciple, Thomas Carraway, who was unable to come to see him. I had previously been to this same prison on the occasion of Thomas's initiation, and the master, Papu, and I were given special permission to visit Thomas and possibly other seekers. Though there were no other initiates in the prison, there were a number of people interested in the teachings. This is largely due to the efforts of Steve Morrow, an initiate and ex-prisoner who has not forgotten what it is like to be in jail. Steve's prison project, an attempt to bring the teachings of the masters to children of God behind bars, as the full endorsement and approval of Sanchi. And it was this project that helped Thomas learn about the path and ultimately get initiated. It was also Steve, with the assistance of Doris and Greg, who made the excellent arrangements with the warden so that the visit went very smoothly. And it was after Steve at some point uh, gave up an active participation in the prison project, and it was at that point that Doris, who had been helping him all along, became more or less the, the brains of the project. 
The meeting with Thomas was very beautiful. The master spent about an hour with him. We were, of course, in the visitor's room, and Thomas was on one side of a wire screen, and we were on the other. I more or less watched out for our privacy while Papu translated the conversation. He gave him instructions and solace, answered many questions, and at one point when Thomas asked him to repeat the mantra for him so he could be sure he was pronouncing it right, he placed his great head right next to the screen and softly spoke into Thomas' ear. It was beautiful to watch him. After a half hour had passed, another inmate, Ralph Catlett, who was a seeker, was let in, but the prison authorities and their benevolence allowed Thomas to stay too, although they had previously said no, so he continued to have darshan while Ralph was asking his questions. We made efforts to see two more prisoners also, but somehow it didn't happen. Their names had not been cleared in advance. Ralph did also later get initiated. In the meantime, remarkable incidents were happening all around us. Both the guard in the tower and the warden in his office observed the master very carefully, although we did not know it, at least I did not know it. And while we were talking with Thomas and Ralph, Steve was answering their many questions. Most remarkable of all is the following incident, for the details of which of the first part of which I am grateful to Steve and to Bobby Baker, a satsangi photographer who followed us to the prison. While we were inside the prison, an older black woman came out. As she came out, she waved to a young man, saying, Don't forget to pray. He answered, I won't, Mom. Bobby said, I felt her grief so strongly, even when she was far away. I could see that her face and her eyes were swollen, almost black and blue from crying. She had apparently seen the master inside. We had to wait about ten minutes in the main waiting room because she came right over to Bobby and asked her what religious order we were affiliated with. Bobby told her that we were not with an order, but that our spiritual teacher was inside the prison, seeing some inmates, and if she waited, she could see him when he came out. She said that that was her only son in the prison. And Steve volunteered that he was his mother's only son, and he had spent two years in prison also. He also mentioned that the master's presence in the prison was saturating the entire place with blessing, including the guards and the warden. And she said instantly, he was sent here by God. Steve started to reply that he was a saintly soul, but ended up by saying, he is a saint. And the woman said with great feeling, yes, he is. And then slowly, he is a God-man. Steve, astounded, said, God-man, yes, that's exactly what we call him. She said, I wish I'd known about this sooner so that my son could have met him. At Steve and Bobby's suggestion, she went back in to ask the warden for permission. While she was doing this, we came out knowing nothing of all that I have just related. At least, I knew nothing of it. As the master got into the car, she came out of the prison. She was hesitant and shy to come over, but Sanchi chose to start a conversation with the videotape people, thus giving her ample time to make up her mind. With a little encouragement from Steve and Bobby, 
She walked up to the master, took his hand in both of hers, and her eyes filled with tears, said, I wanted my son to meet you. I was in talking to the warden when you came out. Sanchi was holding her hands with one of his. With the other, he was holding the hand of her five-year-old granddaughter, daughter of the man in prison, and giving them both as loving a smile as I've ever seen from him, which is saying a great deal. He said, don't worry, I'll pray for him. She said, crying, thank God, thank you. As we pulled away, Doris jumped out of the car, hurriedly told her about the satsang that night, which she could not attend because she was from Fort Worth and had to go back, and impulsively gave her a copy of my book, The Impact of a Saint, which had just been published just a month or so earlier, which had been slated for Thomas, but prison rules prevented it. As we drove away, the woman and the little girl were walking down the road holding hands and waving goodbye to us with blissful glowing smiles. We found out that her son has a sentence of 68 years, but that he may be up for parole soon. And there is a picture, I'm reading from the August 1980 issue of St. Bonnie when this story was in, and there are two pictures at the Texas State Prison, a picture of Sanchi with other people and a picture of Sanchi in the car giving darshan to the little girl, the granddaughter, with Doris standing looking at the little girl, a very loving expression. Sanchi is a little obscured in that picture, a little dark, but it's a beautiful picture all the same. After satsang, Sanchi spoke with Steve and me about the publication of the English translation of Ananda Yoga, by Maharishi Shivpratlal. That's the book Light on Ananda Yoga, which some of you may have read, whom Master Kripal had often mentioned. He was a disciple of Rai Saligram and a good friend of Baba Salan Singh. When he and Salan Singh met, they would both bow down to each other. He fully approved the publication of the book and then spoke to us so compassionately about the condition of those in prison He pointed out that Thomas could not see him really clearly and he could not see Thomas really clearly because of the screen separating them, that he and Thomas could not touch each other. He mentioned the regimentation and the caging and he said very tenderly, they are treated like animals, pulled this way and that way, and added, it is not less than a living hell. It was very moving. At satsang, he told at the end a strange and compelling story of Alexander the Great, who searched for the nectar of immortality and finally found it. But as he was about to drink it, the negative power came to him in the form of a leper with bleeding and running sores. It said, don't drink that. I drank it and look what happened to me. He believed him and didn't drink. And Magrabi Saab later wrote a couplet, Alexander the Great searched for the nectar and found it, but when he found it, he could not drink it. A chilling story. This is a well-known story about Sawansing and another interesting disciple who ended up in prison also. And this, I think, is an embodiment of 
many things about the path which it's very important to be aware of. I will mention that when I went to Texas to initiate Thomas, it was the first time I had ever done an initiation in prison. You know, I stayed with Doris and Greg and Steve Morrow. By the way, both Steve Morrow and Bobby Baker, who are mentioned in that account, of course, have long since left the body and and gone back to their true home, as many of you know. And it is one of the things about getting older is remembering all the dear ones that are not around anymore, including, of course, Doris. They made it very easy for me, and it was, you know, a good experience, and it was not difficult initiating Thomas, although I had to do it through the same screen that I mentioned in the article. It was in the visitor's room, and I could not contact him directly, or that is, I could not. You know, we were separated by the screen, and our voices went through a microphone arrangement. But it went very smoothly, and it was, there was a lot of grace and power, and I was very grateful. And the next day, I initiated at Doris and Greg's house, I initiated Helen Keeler, who later married Steve Morrow quite a bit later. Of course, she and Thomas would have been initiated on the same day if they could have been put in the same place, but they couldn't. Anyway, uh, shortly after that, and I don't remember exactly when, but a year or so later, I'm not sure, I began correspondence with a prisoner in South Carolina who also had been aware of the prison. Somehow or other, he got wind of satsang, I think via the prison project. And he requested initiation, and I began steps toward doing it, and I had I contacted the chaplain at the prison there, but he was very hostile. He was fearful of what I was doing, and he did not think it was a good thing for prisoners to do. And I got very unhappy about the whole thing. And when I went to India shortly after, I talked to Sanchi about it, and I said... There is a prisoner in South Carolina who wants initiation, but I am very dubious about giving it to him because when when I went to Texas, there were satsangis, people who knew the prison authorities, and they paved the way, and it was very easy. There was, it was like there was a, a, a setup. I can't think of the word I want, but a, a, a framework that was there for me to use. And it was very easy. And there's nothing like that in South Carolina. There are no satsangis. The chaplain has been hostile. It seems very inconvenient for me to do that. And Sanchi was very quiet. He looked at me and he looked away and he said, well, for you it's a question of inconvenience. For him it's a question of his whole life. And I said, yes, sir. And I went home and, and I went down and, and I initiated him and the chaplain, although the taxi driver gave me a runaround going from the hotel to the prison and he he drove around and around and around, although I questioned being, as he knew, totally new to the city, I didn't know it. And I ended up taking all the cash I had. But the chaplain luckily gave me a ride back to the hotel 
after the initiation was over, and I got there in about five minutes. So it was a, a lesson that way, too. But anyway, the chaplain it turned around and was extremely pleasant and helpful and took me to meet the assistant warden and was great. Anyway, I never forgot that. For you, it's a question of inconvenience, but for him, it's a matter of his whole life. And I, I think that indicates, like his comment about they are treated like animals, it's no less than a living hell. You know, he, the masters really care about all of us, not just those of us who are in a pretty good position, but all of us. And it doesn't matter if we are initiated or not. It doesn't matter what we believe. We are human beings, which means we are children of God. And they love us. That's the meaning of the phrase, God is love. Anyway, this is a... I'm reading a section from an account about Samhain Singh, in which I'll pick up at this point. Uh, an American lady has just come and met Samhain Singh after having had many visions of him within. She did not know who he was, but she eventually found him. And they've been talking about her and Samhain Singh's conversations with the missionary. At this moment, a number of Gorkha Nepalese satsangis, who were military officers, in the Backlow Cantonment, about 10 miles from Dalhousie, came to see the great master. They fell at his feet. A lady member of the party wet his feet with her tears and would not leave them. A member of the European party remarked that this was an ignominious debasing of human dignity. The great master said, I have tried my best to stop these people from behaving like this, but nobody listens to me. I do not like this habit of touching the feet. At this, the American lady quietly took the Bible from the missionary's hand and read the following passage from it. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known what manner of woman this is that touches his feet, for she is a sinner. Then Jesus answering said unto Simon, A sinner, by the way, in the, in the King James Version of the Bible used in this way invariably means a prostitute or a harlot as it is sometimes <laughs> translated. Then Jesus answering said unto Simon, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed him 500 pence and the other 50. They had nothing to pay. The creditor frankly forgave them both. Tell me now which of them will love him more. Simon answered, That whom he forgave most. Then he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered thy house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, 
but she hath washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman since the time I came in hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loved little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven, thy faith hath saved thee, go in peace. Luke seven thirty-seven through 50 The saint scene described by Luke is a daily occurrence at the Dera, said Mr. Virban. Professor Jagmohan Lal commented, Christ is always doing things like that. That is the habit of all the Christs. The great master would stop me, but otherwise I would have related a very interesting story to you. We will ask the great master not to stop you, said the American lady. Please tell us the story. At this, the great master went inside the house to have a drink of water, leaving the professor to relate the following story. Once the great master went to Amritsar for satsang. It was his custom to give a satsang there on every sankrant, the first day of every Hindu month. He was going to the satsangar on the Majita road in his car, and the road was very crowded. People were going to the satsangar in cars, tongas, bicycles, and rickshaws, and a very large number were on foot. He was at a distance of about two furlongs from the satsangar when, on a turn in the road, a man suddenly fell down in front of his car. The driver stopped the car, and the great master got down to see what had happened. A drunkard had fallen right in front of the car, but luckily he had escaped quite unhurt. The great master, with the help of a companion of the drunken man, tried to make him stand on his feet, but he was too drunk to walk steadily. A number of satsangis who had gathered around helped him to get out of the way. When the great master left, the drunkard asked who was the sadar in the car, for the great master's majestic figure could not but impress this peasant, even though he was not full in his senses. His companion, who was also half tipsy, told him, perhaps just by way of leg-pulling, that the people around said that he was God who had come to earth to save sinners like him. God he seems to be, and I want to go to him to get my sins forgiven, the peasant said, and after a few minutes, he, with a half-emptied bottle of liquor in his pocket, reached the satsangar, reclining on the shoulder of his companion. The great master was sitting in an easy chair, relaxing himself. We notice this man only when he suddenly, with unsteady steps, tumbled down at the feet of the great master, placed his head on his feet, and locked the great master's legs in his arms. You are God. Forgive me my sins, he begged. No, I am not God, said the great master, trying to release himself from his grip. I am a sinner like you. Now get up, my son. I will not rise unless you say that you have forgiven me, said the peasant. The great master laughed involuntarily, and with the laughter came his forgiveness. Manohar, the master's personal attendant, and Jamadar Partap Singh 
wanted to remove the man by force, but the great master stopped them from doing so. Well, he said with a smile, this is a strange way of getting forgiveness by force. The drunkard began to weep bitterly. Say what you like, but I won't leave your feet until you forgive me, he said. The great master laughed heartily and put both his hands on the man's head. Well, rise up, for you are forgiven, my son, he said. All my sins? Am I saved from the hell fire? asked the peasant, raising his head. Yes, your faith has saved you, replied the great master. In the evening, the peasant was found standing in the queue waiting for initiation. A few were rejected, but he was among those who were accepted. You will have to abstain from alcoholic drinks and animal foods in the future, the great master told him. Wine I can never give up. It is simply impossible for me, the man replied. Well, then promise one thing, and that you will, that is that you never take it in my presence, said the great master. That I do promise, sir, said the peasant. How do you earn your livelihood, the great master asked. By theft and robbery, was the surprising reply. That must be given up. You must choose some other profession, said the great master. I do not know any other profession, the man told him. But you must start to earn your living in some other way now that you have been initiated, the great master insisted. I cannot do anything else and have never done anything else, said the peasant. All right, then promise me one thing more, that you will not steal any more than you actually need and that you will not take anyone else with you when you go out to steal. That I promise with all my heart, the man replied. Before leaving, he again fell at the master's feet. The master again blessed him by putting both his hands on his head. After this, he committed theft only once. Following his initiation, he went to attend the marriage ceremony of a female relative who lived in Gurdaspur district, and while there, he ran short of money. One night, he entered the house of a Bania banker and broke open his strong box. Just as he had taken hold of a bundle of currency notes, the heavy upper lid of the iron chest fell on his arm, wounding him grievously and holding it fast as in a trap. All his cunning and cleverness failed to get him out of it. When after a long struggle, he finally gave himself up as lost, the great master appeared before him. Helping the robber to free his arm, he said, Did you not promise me not to steal any more than you needed? Now run away to save your life and leave everything here. After that, the peasant never again committed any theft. On the very first day of his return to his village, his boon companions approached him and asked him to join them for the usual evening drinking bout. At first, he refused point-blank to join their orgy but they were determined to celebrate, as they said, the inauspicious occasion of his being saved from hell fire by his misfortune in meeting a saint. They opened their bottles of illicit liquor and offered him a jugful of it. But with folded hands, he humbly begged to be excused. At this, one of his comrades, Balwant Singh, who was his second in command, took over the command of the group saying that since their regular commander had gone out of his senses, he would act in his place. 
As a warning, he told the master's disciple that his arms and legs would be held by two loyal officers, and he would then be laid flat on the ground with his face upward. Another officer would hold his hand over his nose, and the commander himself would then perform the ceremony of emptying the jug into his mouth. Speak, prisoner. What have you got to say in your defense? thundered his second-in-command. I submit, the robber chieftain replied. There was a loud hurrah and a shout of victory for the illicit wine. They all filled their jugs and sang the Bacchanalian song, Who Dies As Long As Liquor Lives? Gangu, this turned out to be the name of the man initiated by the great master, had just raised his jug to his lips when he saw the great master appear before him. Remember your promise, my son, said the great master. As soon as you break it, I shall take back my pardon also. Gungu stood up, flung the jug at the face of his second-in-command, and ran out of the room, slamming the door shut behind him. Soon he returned with a rifle in his hand. You know what a sharpshooter I am, he told his former cronies. You also know how ruthlessly I can kill my own men for disobedience. Now stay seated as you are and listen to me most attentively. The least movement will bring instantaneous death. His second-in-command started to speak, saying, Sardar, no, Sardar, he thundered, and at the same instant pointed his gun towards Balwant Singh. The silence of the grave fell instantly over the group in the room. Then the robber chieftain spoke. Now listen, my brothers, he said. I have come in touch with a Satguru, one sight of whom has changed my life. I have promised him never to touch wine again or to commit any crime. This robber band breaks up tonight never to meet again to commit any crime. Here are the keys of my treasure chest. I do not see anyone amongst you who has the qualities of a leader. Take these keys and divide the money in the chest equally among you. You will each get about 5,000 rupees. With this sum, each of you can start any business you like. Go to some big city and settle down there. I do not think any of your names are as yet known to the police. You can easily start a new life. If any of you should be arrested and accused for any of your past acts, I shall see that you are properly defended and acquitted. I have now washed my hands of this entire affair. You can speak now if any of you wish to say anything. Sardar! We won't be able to live without you, said one. Then they all said the same thing. We will all live like brothers, but no longer as thieves and criminals, said Gangu in a very loving tone. But no, he continued, I am a proclaimed offender. The police are after me. I won't resist them now, and so I am sure to be captured some day. So you should all try to keep away from me as much as possible. Associating with me won't do you any good. One last word and I have done. At least once in your life, go to Bayas and have the darshan, the glimpse of the great saint who resides there. I won't mind it if any of you go to the police and inform against me. But mind you, this will bring more trouble on you than on me. Saying this, he flung the bunch of keys to them and with folded hands bade them good night and farewell. Gangu was a very well-known 
disciple of Sawan Singh, and Sanchi often referred to him. He did, of course, end up in jail and on death row, or its equivalent in the Indian prison system, and was eventually hung, just as some of the disciples in the Texas death row whom I met and was present at the execution of, two in particular, Leslie Gosh and Larry Robison, who became very good friends of mine. And with Leslie, I, I corresponded with for quite a while. Gangu, like them, died triumphantly. That is, he proclaimed his faith in his master as he was being put to death. Now, Gangu was indeed a very uh, difficult guy. Uh, he was, as it said, a robber and a thief, and by implication a murderer. As he said, you know how easily I can kill my own men. But Gungu didn't start out like that. He started out, he was on his way to join the army, he and a group of friends, when they came across a police officer, this is in rural India, beating a prisoner who was tied down to a rope bed, spread-eagled on the rope bed, and the police officer was whipping him. And Gangu, was, by, by temperament, was not inclined to let something like that happen. So he went up to the police officer and asked him what the man had done. The police officer cursed him and told him to mind his own business or he'd end up in the same position and began to whip the prisoner again. And at that point, Gungu and his friends overpowered the police officer and released the prisoner who ran away. But then, of course, he was a wanted man and he was eventually nailed and went to jail and began a criminal career through that. You know, the, the, the point about not judging others is a very profound one. I mean, Jesus makes it very clear, you know, judge not others that ye be not judged. And he tells that story, which it's a little frightening. In fact, it's very frightening, but it is one of my favorite stories nonetheless in the whole Bible. He tells a story about the man who was in debtor's prison for an enormous sum. Uh, it's often because of the unfamiliar measurements that are used in the gospel. We often do not realize how, late, how much it is, but something like a million dollars, okay? An enormous amount of money. The man owes it. God knows how he owes it, but he owes it. And the, the master to whom he owes it lets him off. He forgives him. The man begs and pleads and points out his, how his family will suffer. And, and the master forgave him and released him from prison. So the first thing he did was go out and find a guy who owed him about $12. He grabbed him by the throat, backed him up against the wall and said, Look here, you pay me what you owe me or I'll throw you in prison. And the fellow workers saw what was going on and went and complained to the master. And the master came and said, look here, I forgave you that enormous debt. And what you do with it is you won't forgive this guy what he owes me. And he threw him back into prison where he remained for the rest of his life, presumably. And Jesus said, this is the way of it. You know, this is how it works. And how that can be is dealt with by Sanchi in this story, which includes Kripal and a sinner, 
a woman who is a sinner, a prostitute. Master Kripal Singh, I'm reading from the book, Sanchi's latest book, The Rescue, The Vars of Bhai Gurdas. He says, Master Kripal Singh Ji used to say, the perfect masters are like the washermen. The washerman accepts the clothes of the gentleman as well as the baker and the oil merchant. These represent two classes of laborers, the oil merchant representing the class of laborer whose clothes are absolutely filthy because they're saturated with oil. But the washerman doesn't say, no, your clothes are too dirty. I won't have anything to do with you. He accepts the clothes of all of them because he knows that he can bring out the purity. He can clean the clothes of everybody. He has faith in his own ability as a washerman. In the same way, the perfect masters know that under the swamp of the maya and under the burden of the sins, there is a pure soul within everyone, and with his grace he can make all of the souls pure. In our area, there used to live a very good person from the Hindu religion. He would not eat meat, he would not drink wine, and he lived a very good life. Also in the same area, they used to live a prostitute. Both of them came to Master Kripal Singh. Master Kripal Singh accepted that prostitute for the initiation and did not give the initiation to that Hindu, even though he was a very good person. How was that prostitute inspired to come to the satsang and get the initiation? It so happened that she used to live about one kilometer distance from my ashram. In the nighttime when she used to hear the banis of the sevadars from the ashram where I used to live, she would come out on the bank of the canal and would sit there and listen to whatever she could hear. When she heard about all the things, she asked people to take her to the ashram. But nobody wanted to accompany her because she was a prostitute, so no one brought her to the ashram. One day she herself came to me and she asked me, Last night I heard you saying, If the gracious saint showers grace, along with the virtuous persons, even the sinners can get liberation. Nanak says this, Is it true? Is it possible for a sinner like me to get liberation? I said, yes, it is possible for you also. And then she asked me about the master. She asked me, would I inform her when he comes? And I said, yes, I will send you the message very happily, and you can come here. So she came there, and when she, along with that Hindu person, went to Master Kripal, Master Kripal Singh Ji very happily accepted that prostitute and gave the initiation to her, but he did not accept that Hindu person. So that made the people of that area criticize Master Kripal a lot because they started wondering what was wrong with that Hindu person. Why didn't Master Kripal give him the initiation and why did he choose that prostitute for the initiation? What was so good about her? I told them only time will tell us why Master made that decision. Even though people criticized Master Kripal and went against him, it was a very big area, still Master did not care for their criticism and he happily and lovingly gave the initiation to that prostitute. I told the dear ones to wait for some time and to see 
whether she continues to be a prostitute or whether she will change herself. It happened that after she got the initiation, she gave away all the wealth that she had collected by doing that business of prostitution. And then she started earning her livelihood by honest means. She gave up that job of prostitute and lived a normal and simple life. Now she is no more in this world. She has died. But until her death, she lived a very good life and she did not go back into her bad ways. So the meaning of saying this is that Master Master Kripal did not care for the criticism of the people. And even though she was a prostitute, Master Kripal forgave her sins, embraced her, and gave her the initiation. So that is why, as he used to always say, Masters come for sinners. We are the sinners. We have all the bad qualities. But it is because of the grace of the Master that we are attached to his feet and we are on this path. Dear ones, often I have said that when we meditate and come to the eye center and when we start remaining there, even those people who go to the lower planes learn about their bad qualities and their bad deeds and what they did in their past lifetime, how many bad deeds they have done. Not only this lifetime, but what they did in their past lifetimes, how many bad deeds they have done. And when we go further up in the higher planes, then everything becomes as clear as an open book. Then we realize about all the bad deeds which we have done in many of our past lives. And then we realize how dirty we were and how very gracious our master was. It was only because of his grace that he cleaned us up. We were very dirty. We had done a lot of sins. And it was only because of his grace that he made us pure. And this is the background. You see, this is how it is that we can owe our master, God, millions of dollars by using financial metaphors, of course, and not be aware of it and get so excited when somebody owes us $12 because we do not know to the extent of our own sinfulness, if we want to put it that way. Remember, too, the word in the New Testament that's translated sin in English, in the Greek language which the New Testament is written in, it means missing the mark. That's a term that originated in archery. And it was the the term that was used, believe the word is makarios, but my memory, my Greek is getting very rusty. Very rusty. It's all that's left is rust, basically. Whatever it is anyway, it means missing the mark. And when we sin, from the point of view of God, what we are doing is missing the point. Okay, so that from his point of view, remember that God is love. And from his point of view... If we keep on missing the point, which we tend to generally do, he doesn't stop loving us any more than we stop loving our own kids when they make mistakes. We love them and we help them do whatever is in our power to help them correct those mistakes. So it's like that. The other definition of sin that Master Kripal gave is forgetting of origin. If we remember 
that in our heart of hearts we are of the same essence as that of God, that we are children of God. God made human beings in his image, male and female. If we remember that, then we don't sin, but we forget it 99% of the time. And because of that, we do make mistakes. We miss the point. We miss the point of our human life. I want to conclude the satsang tonight by reading a brief letter from Master Kripal. This is a letter from Master Kripal that was printed in Spiritual Elixir, and I'm reading from the May 1981 Sant Bani magazine. And it covers a lot of ground and be a fitting conclusion to all that we have been thinking about. Master Kripal says, Regular attendance at the satsang meetings is very useful and helpful. It keeps the mind on the spiritual track. Avoidance of undesirable society is still another necessary factor, and all of these are extremely important in the beginning. A sapling needs water and nourishment. These factors go to nourish it until it grows into a big tree which mighty elephants cannot shake. The outgoing faculties are to be inverted and the mind stilled. For this the remedy has already been given to you. Consider how great a blessing of God you have received. You can develop it while living in the world. Be brave. You cannot run away. That is the work of a coward. But there is one important thing to note. Try to surrender completely to the Master, and under the cover of his power, protection, and grace, you will wade through the waters of life unscathed. The loving Father will protect you like a baby in the might of his strong arms and pass you scot-free from the fires of life without a burn. Everyone errs. Through these errors, you have to grow into a pure and lustrous soul. Weed out the shortcomings one by one. The diary is a necessity and must be used for this purpose. It helps you to keep an eye on the ethical side of your life, for this must be developed along with the spiritual growth. Remember that the father wants to embrace his child. If the child's clothing is soiled with dirt or mud, he will not forsake him, but cleanse the child and take him or her into his lap. He is always with his children, whom he loves a hundred times more than the proverbial love of a mother. I am glad you felt the master walking with you on June 7th to shake off your great load of anxiety and paralyzing nervous reactions to the wrongs done to you by others and that it toned your spirits. As long as you live in the world, you must be up and doing. You must work with ambition and wholeheartedly, and therein lies all beauty. All of creation is beautiful. You love God. As he is imminent in every form, you must love all his creation. But be not attached. Just as you go to a garden and enjoy the beauty of the flowers and the verdure of the bushes, but you do not pluck the flowers or uproot the plants, otherwise the gardener would take you to task. 
You cannot have the results according to your desires or expectations. So always do your best and leave the results to the master overhead. And whatever the results are, take them with good cheer. They are always beneficial to the initiated because the master power working overhead knows what is best for his ailing child. Married life is no bar to spirituality, provided it is led in accordance with the scriptural injunctions. You may seek a companion for your earthly sojourn, one who is of your way of thinking and anxious to seek a higher worldly life. It would be helpful to both of you. My best wishes are always with you. You may go where you like, live anywhere, and do anything that may serve to help your inner progress. Anything that may retard your inner progress will not be in your interest. Should you get a chance to come to India on any assignment and are able to be near me, I will be glad to see you. The effect of personal aura and personal environments cannot be underrated. But while it is so, the master is not limited by time or space. He is always with you, even though he be thousands of miles away. Please learn to be receptive to his grace and feel his kindly presence, riding with you on the buses, chatting with you in the street, sitting with you in the park, by your office desk, and accompanying you every morning to the office, slowing down by the lily pond to check the new flowers, and walking back with you in the evening, all the way back by the new moon. Master is always with the disciple and never leaves him or her until the end of the world. The father will never disown his children. And that's the satsang tonight.